Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ilya Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, let me start you with what has been the dominant story in the day preceding our taping. There was this Washington Post story that ran the day before we're taping this saying that Donald Trump in an Oval Office meeting with the Russian ambassador and the Russian foreign minister disclosed classified information at the at the code word level, so as secret as it gets really, that could have, according to these allegations, potentially been used to reveal an intelligence asset gathering information from ISIS. Now, since that report came out, H.R. Uh, McMaster, the national security advisor, has denied that anything improper happened here. President Trump has said he was totally within his rights, although he hasn't sort of on the nose denied the uh, the Post story. Trying to put all these pieces together, Victor, how much cause for alarm, if any, do you find in this story as reported? Oh, very little, because there's a, two or three issues involved, and one is what's the normal pattern of events with presidents? I mean, H. I mean, Harry Truman re- told Stol- Stalin that we had the bomb that was classified at, at Yalta, and uh, Obama himself and Car- uh, John Kerry shared information about ISIS uh, with the Russians, I think it was 2016, and I remember just being horrified reading uh, David Ignatius' detailed leaked accounts of the Bin, La- the Bin Laden raid, in which a lot of... Uh, Special services people got very angry, special forces people. So I think presidents do that. Uh, the diff- second thing is, but the reaction of the press, some of the same reporters who thought that Obama's re- um, releases of classified information were not that great are now hysterical about Trump. And then who are these sources that come out of the office and then leak to the Washington Post and then identifies a city, quote unquote, or identifies um, information involving the supposed leak in a way that Trump never did. So we would never know that any of the public wouldn't know or the world wouldn't know, I should say, unless the Washington Post gave the information that they're damning Trump for not giving to the world other than to the Russians, supposedly. And someone who traveled to Iraq through the worst parts of Anbar province during the surge with H.R. McMaster, uh, I just don't think he's, a, and I read his book, I just don't think he's the type of person to lie on behalf of Donald Trump. He didn't. What he was trying to say is that this thing go that people, presidents and high ranking officials talk candidly to each other and they do not imperil um, the security of their forces or their national their nation security, but they say things that are not uh, known to normal citizens. And that's what he was trying to get at. So I think it'll, it's just like the Comey story. I think it will pass, but it's part of a larger narrative of a thousand Knicks that bleed Donald Trump to death and make him an illegitimate president. So when you have this event happening in the context of a meeting with the Russian ambassador and the Russian foreign minister, it's been suggested in some of these reports that the – even ones that were – whether they're critical or non-critical, that the president was trying to be open here because he really does think, as has been suggested in several other contexts, that there's room to improve the U.S. relationship with the Russian government. I, I know you've said in past episodes that you think Trump is probably overestimating that probability, but what's the best realistic prospect there? I mean is there some possibility of 
affirmative progress with Moscow, or is the real imperative there just to keep Moscow in place through robust American deterrence? I think both. I, th- I think you've got to have deterrence. We didn't have deterrence with them under the Obama administration. We And the irony of all of this narrative is that it was the Obama administration who who crafted narrative, and Mike McFaul was sort of an architect of that. And uh, that administration is very critical of Donald Trump as being naive and too eager for a reset. So there's irony there. But I think most importantly, uh, Ob- Putin respects people who look after their own na- national interests. He understands that. Maybe fears is even a better word. So I think he, once we reestablish deterrence, not just with Russia, but with other entities like China or Iran or North Korea or ISIS, then he will start to uh, develop more respect for us. And what can we do with that respect? I think that for certain periods, we can work together in Syria against ISIS. I don't think it's very likely that we're going to turn him away from Iran or turn him away from Syria as long as he can't see any down, uh, downside in those relationships. It's, it's incumbent upon us to tell Putin not drop Iran or drop Syria, but this is how we're going to show you that this is going to hurt you. And not try to just persuade him, but show him how, whether it's sanctions or where it, whether it's getting rid of the regime or whether it's stirring up trouble against the Iranians, I don't know. But we have to demonstrate that it's not in his interest rather than to presume that we know better than he does what's Russia's interest. One of the stories that's been lost in this controversy of the last couple of days, pretty major foreign policy story. Over this last weekend, the North Koreans had another missile test. This one reportedly more successful than any others that they've yet had. There are reports that this missile would be capable of hitting Guam, where the U.S. has military bases. And Victor, you know, if we hearken back, I remember during the Bush years that the conventional wisdom on North Korea was – that most of these sort of provocative moves were bluster and that they were trying to deter any threats to the regime, but that while you might have had to worry about them selling some of their technology to try and get their hands on hard currency, you didn't have to worry much about them actually taking military action because it cut against their chief goal, which was preserving the regime. This was the conventional wisdom at the time, now about a a decade old. To what extent does that analysis ring true at all today when you're talking about the North Korea of 2017, or has it fundamentally changed at some level? Well, I think it's always true that they've found a successful calculus in which they feign madness, and then they have nukes, and then they uh, shake down the world for foreign aid, and they get billions in a way that other countries with roughly the same population, like Malaysia, for example, do not. But each year, no one would argue that North Korea gets less adept with its nuclear program. In other words, they believe everybody believes that they're getting more incrementally uh, adept at uh, developing better and longer-range missiles and bigger warheads. So it's been a decade since uh, your reference point, and so we should assume that, I don't know if it's uh, arithmetic or geometric, but they have progressed in a way that would probably mean that they have a capability beyond the South China Sea. And uh, at this point, they would be stupid to try to take out Guam and lose their entire country. What they're aiming for is to threaten Los Angeles or San Francisco or Honolulu. And it, it's got to be each, each administration, whether it was uh, George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, George W. Bush or Barack Obama, has passed the problem on. And I could even go back to the Korean War. 
it starts to loom very large now, that decision by Matthew Ridgway and Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower and against MacArthur for understandable reasons, but not to go beyond the 38th parallel uh, in April, May of 1951, once we had really defeated the enemy on the face of battle and could have gone back up, field of battle, excuse me, could have gone back up into North Korea, I think in a way that we didn't do very well in 1950, but we could have done in, in late 1951. To what extent does the calculus change there with the presence of Kim Jong-un running that country? I mean, there, there have been a number of people who suggested that he's in some ways probably more unstable than his father, but is that just all sort of guesswork, or is there anything we can point to that makes us think that well, maybe... He his... his brother, and he used a macabre manner of doing so with chemical weapons, a chemical weapon or a nerve agent, So, and he's young. He's younger than his father uh, at his prime. I mean, when his father was saying these things, he was 20 years older. And when all of us in our late 20s, early 30s are different people than we are in our 50s and 60s. So there's something to be worried about. And what he's trying to do to, to just distill everything, he's trying to tell the world that conventional deterrence does not apply to him because he's crazy and he's willing to go down with all of North Korea to take out a Western or westernized city. And 99% of the time, whether it's Pakistan says that or Iran says that or whomever says that, that they're lying, but because of nuclear weapons, we want 100% surety rather than 99. Let me turn you now for a moment to – there's this evergreen debate in foreign policy circles, and it's now sort of playing out within the Republican Party about how you balance a country's interests – and its values. And what's precipitated the most recent fight over this was this speech that Rex Tillerson gave to his employees at the State Department within the last week, where he said, I'm just going to quote sort of the relevant section here. In some circumstances, if you condition our national security efforts to someone adopting our values, we probably can't achieve our national security goals or our national security interests. Okay, that's Tillerson. That was met critically by John McCain who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times rebutting this in which he said – I'm quoting him here – it's foolish to view realism and idealism as incompatible or to consider our power and wealth as encumbered by the demands of justice, morality, and conscience, close quote. OK, so they're both talking at a certain level of abstraction, Victor, and obviously in the real world, these questions are going to turn largely on the specifics. But does it follow from that, the fact that it comes down to the details of any specific case, that in trying to balance your interests and ideals, your decisions have to be sort of necessarily ad hoc, or are there principles that we could sort of identify a priori as to when one might outweigh the other? Yeah, I think McCain, and I've always agreed that we should promote consensual government abroad, but I think McCain has misinterpreted what Tillerson said, perhaps because he wasn't specific enough. What he's saying is, is I take it. If you take somebody like General Sisi in Egypt, he's 55% preferable to the alternative. He's not a 99% constitutionalist that we would like. But Tillerson's saying we don't have to have a perfect person to have a good person considered the alternative. So whereas McCain would pressure, 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 as Obama did, uh, the Egyptian government under Mubarak, and then get an election one time with the Muslim Brotherhood, and then have death and chaos until Sisi had a coup, Tillerson would probably say, given what you have there, 
you have you can work with CC and moderately push him here and there to improve. But once you lose lose somebody like that in your quest for a perfect democratic leader that doesn't exist, you're going to get the Muslim Brotherhood as we see, or ISIS or a wasteland like we see in some place like Libya that we tried that with Gaddafi, who was a monster in rehabilitation. I think nobody thinks now that was a good idea. It would have been much better to transition over to the Gaddafi children and develop European uh, trade interest in Libya than just to whack him out and lead the country over to the Islamists. So I, I think that McCain, is. there's other agendas that are, that are animating him right now. I think he's very, very angry at Donald Trump. From the first day of the Trump candidacy, he attacked John McCain. John McCain's supporters are sort of the neoconservative movement, which on the right, at least, they're almost to the person anti-Trump. So there's a lot of animus there that that makes McCain say things that are, are against, I think, the administration that don't really bear out. The last question that I'll put to you today, we're about four months now into the Trump presidency. What, on the foreign policy front, have you seen that most heartens you about how the president's doing business and that most concerns you about the future? Well, I look at the team, and by that I mean Mattis at Defense, McMaster at National Security, and people under them like Derek Harvey or Joel Rayburn. And then I look at Nikki Haley at the UN, John Kelly at Homeland Security, Mike Pompeo at the CIA, and I think a, have we had that talented and experienced group of people before? Not since the Eisenhower, the Truman administration, have we? And then I say to myself, B, are they being micromanaged in the way that uh, Clinton or Obama sometimes did? And no, I think they have more leeway or more per- wider parameters of operation than any other foreign policy team in my memory. So I think that's really good. Uh, what What I'm worried about is that Trump's Art of the deal style, that is, in say, take trade negotiations of demanding this and this and this and saying this and this and this, and then people anticipating ahead of time that he will go back to a 51% position is going to get stereotyped. So when Trump is all over the map and says all things, I think initially it confuses people, it shocks people. But somebody like China now, if Trump calls up tomorrow and says, we're going to talk to Taiwan directly. It's not going to have much effect on China. They're just going to say this isn't. We've done, been there, done that, and so I think he's going to have to really be sparing or economical in his uh, art of the deal style of diplomacy. All right. Thanks as always to our audience for listening to the Classicist podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, you can stop by Defining Ideas at Hoover.org to read more of Victor's commentary. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. All right. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.